Well, it is such a delight to be here. Uh, thank you for coming yourselves. Uh, with the tenure of some of the deacons in the room, I feel like I should not be the one standing up here. I, I feel like I probably have a lot more to learn than offer. Um, but yeah, it's an, it's an honor. Thank you, James and New Covenant Baptist, for being willing to host this and for inviting me. Uh, and, and my prayer is that there would be something, at least one kind of major takeaway for each of you. Um, and, and the Holy Spirit, I, I, I trust, will, given all of our, you know, despite all of our, our various backgrounds and experiences, and uh, we have people who have been serving as deacons for three decades, and some of whom are, are just, you know, preparing to serve as deacons for the first time, I trust that the Holy Spirit will meet each of us where we're at, speak to us um, a word in season as we need to hear it through God's Word. Uh, just to give you a sense of uh, the, the, the landscape, where we're going to be going, what we're going to be covering, um, we are going to, this morning in our main session, we're going to look at who deacons are, and this afternoon we'll consider what deacons do. Who deacons are, and then what deacons do. Uh, if you have questions, uh, go ahead and write them down because we're going to have a, a Q&A session later, and we do have some uh, questions that have already been submitted, but if we have time, we'll, we may be able to get to others. So if you have a question, just, just write it down, and, and you can save it for the Q&A session later. Um, and one other thing, just kind of a, a housekeeping matter, is, is I want to... Um, tell you that these talks are going to be a little more topical in nature. If, if you hear me uh, preach on a Sunday, as I have the privilege of doing in this pulpit tomorrow, um, it, you know, I, I'm certainly a believer in expository preaching, uh, where the main idea of the message is the main idea of the passage. Um, but given the nature of this topical workshop, uh, we are going to be hovering. We're certainly going to be referencing Scripture and looking at Scripture, but especially in the afternoon talk, um, we are going to be uh, considering applications from Scripture um, that are informed by the Bible, but um, not kind of a verse-by-verse walkthrough of, of any given passage. With all that said, let's go ahead and, and get started. Uh, I want to show you, um, before we look at the, the, the main text that we're going to be working from in this session, I do want you to turn briefly to Acts chapter 6. So we're going to return to, to Acts 6 this afternoon, but I want to show you one thing there now as we start to think about who deacons are, as we start to think about who deacons are. So, when people think about who deacons are, their minds rightly go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, which we're going to spend time walking through in a few minutes, because that's where the Apostle Paul lists out the character standards, the qualifications for the office of deacon. But the other passage in, in the New Testament that is most famously associated with the office of deacon is, that, is Acts chapter 6. And, and as I said, we'll think about it more this afternoon. But for now, uh, I want to show you that these two passages are actually not disconnected when it comes to this topic of who deacons are. And here's what I mean. Look at verse 3. Acts chapter 6, verse 3. Uh, We'll actually start in verse 1, just so you have a sense of the context. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, that is the the Greek-speaking, Greek-cultured Jews, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve apostles summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, here's what I want you to see. Verse 3, the apostles say, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. 
So even here, so when you think of qualifications for a deacon, don't just think of 1 Timothy 3. In fact, what I think Paul is doing in 1 Timothy 3 is he's double-clicking on what Luke has already shared here. Pick out from among you seven men who are characterized by these three things. They are of good repute. In other words, they are to be respectable. That, that's going to be what Paul uh, means when he, when he says in 1 Timothy 3, they're, they're to be dignified, worthy of respect. Number two, they're to be full of the Spirit. They're, gonna, they're, they're to be mature Christians. And number three, full of wisdom, practical wisdom. Not, not just people who know how to good, have good quiet times, but people who um, ha- are, a, are, are a safe pair of hands, who, who live skillfully in God's world. So I just want to show you that, that I want those three, those three descriptors of good repute, full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom to be ringing in your ears as we read Paul's qualifications in 1 Timothy 3. So go ahead and turn there to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now imagine with me just an ordinary church for a moment, okay? Uh, we just give it any name you want, Fairview Baptist, okay? It's just something, something generic, okay? Several folks in the congregation are known and respected, though for different reasons. Tyrone is the most sec- successful businessman in the church. Alex is the biggest giver. Nick can fix anything. Pat has been around for 40 years. Miguel, Miguel hopes to eventually become an elder. That's a pretty impressive cast of characters there. Successful businessman, biggest giver, Mr. Fix-It, tenure, 40 years, desire to be an elder. Is any of them qualified to be a deacon? Well, the answer is we don't know. We don't have enough information about any of these folks to know if they're qualified to be a deacon. One of the tragedies in church life today is the lack of attention given to what biblical deacons are and are not, which is why we're starting with who deacons are before we get to what deacons do. This is, who deacons are is upstream from what deacons do. If we miss this, we ruin the whole thing. Many churches seem content, perhaps you're in one or, or have, have experience with one, uh, where the churches are content to kind of just stick with custom and tradition on this subject with Bibles closed. Now, I can understand the hesitations, okay? I'm not going to get up here and just act like it's easy to change things that have become calcified in the life of a church in terms of tradition. I don't have energy to rock the boat, we might think. It it didn't go so well last time. A wise leader has to pick his battles. Surely this topic of deacons isn't that pressing. If it ain't broke, why fix it? It's working well enough. It's not a, not a dumpster fire of a situation, so let's leave it alone. Now, as I said, such reasoning can represent the way of wisdom. There is wisdom at times in moving slowly to enact biblical change, as long as it's not a kind of first order, as long as the integrity of the gospel is not at stake. Uh, When John Piper went to Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis in the early 1980s, he tried to to move the church, which was kind of a traditional Baptist deacon-led model, he tried to move them to having a plurality of elders, and he failed. He, he was unable to convince the congregation that this was the way of Scripture, um, at least his, in his first shot, he, w- he was unsuccessful. And so someone came up to him and said, well, what are you going to do, uh, Pastor Piper? And he says, well, uh, specifically referring to kind of the old, older guard in the church who were, were 
were, I think, assuming that elders were a Presbyterian thing, not a biblical thing, and so they were, they were hesitant to want to change things up or think afresh, even from Scripture, about the, the office of elder. What are you going to do about these folks? And Piper responded, I'm going to do two things. One, I'm going to outlove them, and two, I'm going to outlast them, which he did. So, when it comes to deacons and how you do deacons and how churches can uh, conform the way they do deacons more to the pattern of Scripture, there is wisdom in taking your time uh, lest you actually do something that's counterproductive and ends up uh, creating more problems than it solves. And yet, we must all face the uncomfortable fact that Jesus doesn't mince words when addressing leaders who cling to tradition on matters where God has spoken. And a deacon's character is something on which God has spoken. And listen, ignoring what the Bible says about deacons is not just short-sighted. It's not just wrong. You know what else it is? weird. It's strange because the Bible doesn't say much about deacons. So you would think that because the Bible doesn't say much about deacons, we would take all the more seriously and pay all the more careful attention to what it does say. So hopefully you're, you're looking at 1 Timothy 3, and I want to show you, I will read it in a minute, but I want you to notice as we read this passage that Paul's, I just want you to notice his apparent disinterest, at least here, in what potential deacons or current deacons are able to do. I know most of you, I'm imagining, came here because you want answers to that question. What do I do? How can I do it better? In 1 Timothy 3, when Paul turns to this topic, he is not interested in answering your question. This paragraph is not a skill set. Its focus is squarely on who deacons must, must be, which, by the way, is a lesson which reverberates throughout the pages of Scripture that God cares more about character than gifting. What you do matters. Who you are matters more. God cares more about your character than your gifting. So let's read together. 1 Timothy 3. In verses 1 to 7, he has listed qualifications, standards for the office of elder or overseer or pastor. Those are words that are synonyms, interchangeable terms referring to the same office, elder slash pastor slash overseer. And he, he charts out the, the character for, for that office in verses 1 to 7, and then he pivots in verse 8. So listen as I read 1 Timothy 3, starting in verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, or the women likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The diaconal requirements here are divided into three negatives and three positives. So if you're, if you're taking notes, I want you to, to, to notice that Paul is not just throwing a bunch of 
you know, infallible spaghetti against the wall. <laughs> He's not just throwing a bunch of, of data against the wall. No, there is a clear structure and a logical flow to how he lays out these qualifications. Three negative ones, three positive ones. But first, one of the qualifications flies like a banner over the whole list. Okay, so there's, there's a banner qualification, and then underneath that banner, picture just two things hanging from a banner, three negative qualifications, three positive ones. But first, the banner. Deacons must be, quote, dignified. Remember I said that that's double-clicking on the idea in Acts 6 that deacons must be men of, of dignity. The NIV translates this, worthy of respect. This does not mean, deacons, that you must be perfect, but it does mean you must be humble. You must be repentant. You must be examples for the flock. So what does it look like practically to be dignified? That's what's going on. Paul, Paul is flying this banner over the, the passage over the list of qualifications, dignified, worthy of respect, above reproach, what does that look like? Well, here's what it looks like. Six things. And as I said, he lists the negative requirements first. What a deacon must not be. And all three things that a deacon must not be relate to one particular fruit of the Spirit. Self-control. Three negative qualifications, i.e. three things a deacon must not be, all related to self-control. Let's look at them. Number one, not double-tongued. Not double-tongued. Qualified deacons control their tongues. Because deacons are in the business of serving, they will have countless interactions with people. Some people think deacon work is not people work, but that's not true. Deacon work is people work. You're often dealing with people who are disgruntled and aren't going to be appreciative of the work you're doing. And you will have countless interactions with folks in your church, and these interactions will not, as I said, always be with the shiniest saints. You'll often be confronted with sufferers and strugglers, some of whom will be prone to complaining. And in all of these interactions, you must be compassionate while also remaining vigilantly on guard. Think about it like this. Deacons who are fulfilling the biblical role and are living into this qualification of being not double-tongued, they will guard their tongues guard their ears, and then guard their tongues again. Here, here's, here's what I mean. First, they'll guard their, their tongues from disclosing information that the person being served either should not know or simply doesn't need to know. Yeah, Pastor Dave can be like that sometimes. Just between us, it's a struggle for some of us deacons. They guard their, their tongues in their interactions with people. But they also guard their ears from being party to gossip or slander against church leaders or fellow members. Oh, really? She said that? I was already suspicious, but I'll, I'll be sure to keep my distance now. And then they guard their tongues again from gossip or slander as they recount conversations or information to others. I mean, we all know it's difficult after hearing something sensitive or juicy that makes you feel like you were in the room when it happened, you know, that you, that, you know, that kind of insider baseball knowledge, it's difficult not to find a way to pass it along, perhaps couching it as a prayer request. Oh, bless his heart. We, we really do need to pray for Earl. He just can't seem to get it together. So we guard our, our tongues. 
our ears, and then after those conversations, our tongues again in what we recount. Being double-tongued is not a minor flaw or personality quirk. It is a symptom of hypocritical pride. It is consciously saying one thing to one group and then saying or insinuating a different thing to a different group. A double tongue indicates fear of man, and that's a big deal because a deacon driven by fear of man can destroy an entire church. As one commentator described it, the, the prohibition against being double-tongued is a prohibition against being devil-tongued. Because when we traffic in whispering and gossip and complaining, we are doing the devil's bidding. We are doing Satan's work. He is the accuser of the brethren. Make sure you're not working for him in the name of working for Christ. It's been observed that flattery is saying something to one's face that you wouldn't say behind their back. And slander is saying behind someone's back what you wouldn't say to their face. Or gossip, rather. Gossip is saying behind someone's back what you wouldn't say to their face. A qualified deacon, Paul is saying, studiously avoids both. A qualified deacon avoids flattery. He's not going to say something to you that he wouldn't say behind your back, and he avoids gossip. He's not going to say something behind your back that he wouldn't say to you. But to the extent that a deacon lives to please people, to the extent that you, brother, sister, live to please people in your church— This will prove impossible because only the fear of God can drive out the fear of man. Satan will do anything he can to gain a foothold in the household of Christ. And a mature deacon won't use words to crack the door. Not double-tongued. Second negative qualification not addicted to much wine. Remember how I said that the common denominator with these first three qualifications is self-control. So if the first one is about being self-controlled in your speech, this is about being self-controlled in your appetites. Yes, this standard prohibits drunkenness, but it also challenges anything that would enslave a deacon's heart or impair their judgment. Now, it's possible, uh, we can't know for sure, but it's possible that Paul included this qualification because the nature of diaconal work will, will sometimes put you, or in the ancient world, would put you in touch with people who needed wine for medicinal reasons. So he's saying, hey, don't abuse that. But whatever the purpose, the principle is, is, is clear. Qualified deacons will not indulge cravings or abuse substances that would hinder their work or their witness. This could be serious stuff like abuse of alcohol or drugs, but this could also be a, abuse of, of food and entertainment and uh, just an utter lack of self-control when it comes to the closest screen before you, whether that's your phone or your computer or the TV. A qualified deacon knows how to say no, even to things that in themselves are morally neutral in order to say yes to what Christ has for us. So a deacon Number one, this is what part of, okay, what does it mean to be dignified? There's the banner. Number one, not, uh, not double-tongued. Number two, not addicted to much wine. Number three, not greedy for dishonest gain. So deacons carrying out the biblical mandate will control their speech, their appetites, and also their wallets. Specifically, what goes into their wallets. 
Because once again, just as the nature of diaconal work will sometimes put you in touch with wine in the ancient world, one thing that's not limited to the ancient world is that diaconal work will put you in touch with money. So Paul warns against installing anyone known for being deceptive, cutting moral corners, obsessing over money. In other words, a worldly, materialistic person who struggles with greed. We, we all struggle with greed, but if, but if you're in the grip of greed, that is going to fuel temptation in your heart toward dishonest gain. There will be moments as a deacon where, where no one is looking except for the God of the universe. And it'll be tempting to engage in dishonest gain. This should be an area where a deacon displays unimpeachable self-control. Okay, so those are the three negative qualifications. And they show up in self-control in your speech, your appetites, and your money. But after listing these three negative requirements, Paul then turns his attention to three positive ones. Three positive ones. Look at what's next. This is verse 9. Holds the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. It can be easy to assume that given the practical nature of their work, deacons don't need to really know much doctrine. I mean, doctrine, come on. Highfalutin theology, isn't that what the pastor went to seminary to learn? I even saw in his office that he has a little thing that apparently says he mastered divinity. That sounds pretty impressive. Isn't it his job to, to worry about the spiritual stuff, the theological stuff? To, I'm, not, I'm not a doctrinalist. Not so fast. It's true that the primary responsibility for teaching and governing falls to the church's elders, and the roles of elders and deacons must not be confused. So much, so many problems in churches are the result of confusing the office of elder and deacon, and we'll think about that more later. But even though it's not the deacon's primary responsibility to lead the church Spiritually, with Scripture, deacons are not exempt from knowing their Bibles. In fact, they will often be in situations where they will have opportunity to speak biblical truth. So the question for you, listen, it's the question for every Christian, really. But as an exemplary Christian, as someone that has been recognized by a congregation and installed into an official, formal role, an office in the church— it must be true of you. The question is not whether you are a theologian. It's whether you're a good one. Every Christian, in fact, every human is a theologian, broadly defined. The moment you start to think about God and form opinions about God and articulate them, you are, for better or worse, doing theology. Deacons, you must grow in your theological understanding about who God is, who, who we are in, our, uh, in the image of God and in our fallen state apart from God, uh, who Christ is, the, you know, the, the, the nature of salvation, the nature of the church. All of these things are not irrelevant to the office of deacon because they are not irrelevant to Christianity. When Paul uses the word mystery here, see that? holds the mystery of the faith. Mystery, he's not referring to, you know, uh, a genre of Roman novels. Uh, he's referring to divine truth. That, that's the way mystery is used in the New Testament. Uh, even the word apocalyptic is getting at that. An, uh, the, an apocalypse is just an unveiling, a revealing of something that was already there. And so, mystery, as Paul uses it, 
is divine truth that was once hidden and is now revealed. And he's referring to the content of the gospel and Christian doctrine. Now, I could just move on to the next qualification, but let's linger here for a moment, okay? These, every word here matters, holds the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. In order for that to be true of you or of deacons in your church, at least three things have to be the case. One, a deacon, you, if, if you're a deacon, you must know the faith. Now, is the word know there? It's not, but that's, but it's obvious because you can't hold what you don't know. A qualified deacon, again, will be eager to grow in a clear understanding of God, humanity, Christ, salvation, and so on. Go to one of your elders, go to your pastor and say, hey, I, this, this guy at this workshop I was at, um, I was expecting like some, some practical help, and he just told me to read theology, but, and he told me to come to you. Is there a book you think I should read? Could I, could I read a book with you or with someone in the church you'd recommend? Um, what area do you think I, I could maybe grow and kind of shore up my understanding of according to Scripture? That's a homework assignment. Before the end of 2021, I encourage every one of you who is a deacon to read a book of substantive, meaty theology. This doesn't count, all right? Go, go, to, go to one of your pastors, one of your elders, get their recommendation on something you can read that will just grow your understanding and your affection for what God has accomplished in Christ. So a deacon must know the faith in order to hold it, but they also must hold the faith. That's what it says. So implied is that you know the faith, which means you need to learn the faith. That's not your faith subjectively. That's the faith objectively. Christian doctrine, this body of, uh, of, of, of work, this body of, of knowledge that has been transmitted and passed down from generation to generation, sound theology, you need to know it and you need to hold it. Whatever truth a deacon grasps with their mind they must cling to with their heart. If you are embarrassed by God's Word in the face of the, the, the winds of cultural trends, if you're embarrassed by what the Bible says, if there are things in the Bible you really wish it didn't say, if you feel like you have to constantly apologize for the Bible's stance on debated hot-button issues, then you may well be a Christian, but you are not yet qualified to be a deacon. God's Word is precious. Pastors, look for those in your church who embrace it, not just accept it the way we accept, you know, a, a, a scalpel in our mouth at the dentist. No, that actually embrace God's Word with humble gladness. All right. You must know the faith, you must hold the faith, and you also, it's implied, must live the faith. Where am I getting that? Well, Paul could have just said, holds the mystery of the faith and moved on to verse 10. But look, look at the end of verse 9. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. It's not enough to know and to hold what's true. You also have to have a conscience that's clear. Again, that doesn't mean you're, you're, you're perfect, that you're sinless. If that's the way you feel, then there are actually bigger problems going on. But this is referring back to the previous con, uh, uh, qualification since hypocrisy, remember, whether that is expressed in duplicitous speech, secret addictions, dishonest prophets, hypocrisy will slowly shatter a clear conscience. But a deacon with a clear conscience will be a person of moral integrity and courage. 
Listen, clarity of conscience is not the ultimate standard. Your conscience is useful, but it's not infallible. Only the Bible is infallible. Clarity of conscience is not the ultimate standard since consciences are fallen. And some, the Bible talks about weak consciences and seared consciences. You know the difference between them? A weak conscience is like an alarm clock that goes off when it shouldn't. A seared conscience is like an alarm clock that doesn't go off when it should. A deacon with a healthy conscience will keep short accounts with God through genuine, ongoing confession and repentance. If you excel by God's grace at repentance, then you're probably ready to be a deacon. It's about the direction of your life. Are you every day repenting of sin and trusting in Christ. That's not just what you got, got you into the kingdom. That's what sustained you day by day. That is the secret of the Christian life. Repenting, believing, repenting, believing, repenting, believing. We would not be here right now, historically speaking, if it were not for a German monk named Martin Luther in 1517 nailing 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, and those 95 theses, which are famous around the world, do you know what the first of those 95 was? Quote, all of a Christian's life is one of repentance. That launched a movement which lit Europe on fire and has revolutionized the world. All of a Christian's life is one of repentance. That's what it means to live with a clear conscience. Number five, So this is the the fifth qualification, but it's the second of the positive qualifications. How many times, tested and proven, tested and proven. How many times has a church been harmed by a deacon who had no business being one? And how many of those times could that disaster have been averted if the church had just paid heed to this one qualification about being tested and proven blameless? I'm really encouraged that there are some aspiring deacons, potential deacons from Redemption City Church here, because I think their presence at a workshop like this is part of what it's like, part of what it probably means to be tested to be proven blameless. So they're not flying blind. If they are installed into this, they're going in with eyes wide open. They understand what the Bible says about the office and what the character and conduct of the people who hold that role ought to be. Now, I think this standard, tested and proven, can get ignored and sidelined Because Paul isn't clear. We really wish he would be clear. We wish there would be a footnote in our Bibles, you know, in Greek, which said, which says, uh, this, uh, you know, you should do a three-year residency or whatever. Paul's not going to give us that. We don't know what the process should entail. We don't know how long it should last. If you came here wanting me to tell you exactly the answer, then you're going to leave disappointed. But individual churches must exercise wisdom and prayerful discernment. What is non-negotiable is that there should be a season of testing. Being a deacon, this is, this is one of, the, um, one of the, the things that I think is unhelpful is when churches make uh, basically future elders deacons for a season as a way of kind of like seeing if they've got the stuff. Okay, that's not what it means to be tested. Being a de- you, you, you need to see, is this person, do they, do they match this profile in 1 Timothy 3 before they can serve as a deacon? In my own church, uh, there, there are at least, or at least in my church in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, uh, we, as James mentioned, we, we three weeks ago moved to Richmond, Virginia, but at Third Avenue Baptist in, in Louisville, at least three steps must occur before someone becomes a deacon. First, the elders will discuss whether the person would be a good fit for the position. Now, there's even a step before that. We will, we will 
ask the congregation for recommendations. We will solicit feedback about who, who, who is an exemplary servant among us. Who would serve this church well as a deacon? But then the elders will discuss whether the person would be a good fit. And if we agree that the person would be, we invite them, assuming they desire to serve, to complete a, a pretty lengthy questionnaire. We want to make sure they understand the gospel. We want to make sure they're, uh, I mean, in order to be a member of our church, you have to understand the gospel and you have to have given a testimony of your conversion. But we also want to know that, th- that they have some basic understanding of, of Christian doctrine and Christian life and that they have reflected on this qualification list. That document, this questionnaire, which you can find in Appendix 2 uh, of, of the book, it gives us, uh, as elders, a better sense of, of their convictions, their practices, their strengths, their weakness, and then finally, their weaknesses. Finally, we will nominate that person to the congregation in a members meeting, encouraging the church not to rush to just vote right then and there. We will say, hey, we are bringing this name to you for con- under consideration to serve us as a deacon. It's going to lay over for a month until our next month's members meeting, If you have questions about this person, if you want to get to know them better, feel free to do that. If you have questions for us, come talk to us offline over the course of the next month. And then at that next members meeting, a month hence, we will uh, formally vote as a congregation to install the person into the diaconate. Now, that's not the only way to do it, but that's getting at what it means to be tested and proven. Number six, faithful family life. Faithful family life. Paul's final requirement is that a deacon's godliness must extend to their closest relationships. I can actually be more specific. It must begin with their closest relationships. If a man is married, for example, he must love his wife and be faithful to her alone. The the word, the language there is literally a one-woman man. I don't think that divorce or being single disqualifies one from the diaconate because the focus here is not so much on have you ever been married. The question is, are you faithful now? Is there any ground for people to think that you are, uh, you are falling short of the, biblical, of the biblical standard. That's what it means. That's the banner. That's what it means to be worthy of respect, dignified, above reproach. It's been said that a, a church can always get another uh, pastor but the pastor's wife can't get another husband. And it's the same with with a deacon. Your church can always get another deacon, but a deacon's wife can't get another husband. So if you're a man and you're serving as a deacon, you're married, know that serving your spouse is the ultimate training ground for serving the saints. And if you have children, if you have children, they are not inconveniences roadblocks for what God has really called you to, they are what He has first called you to in your home. Raise them in an atmosphere of gentle firmness and joyful love. Your job is not only to establish the beliefs of your household, but the morale of your household. Manage your family with deliberateness, diligence, and thereby the Holy Spirit will train your heart to serve His church in the same manner. The Apostle Paul could not be clearer. Listen to me. There is no such thing as a good deacon who is a lousy spouse or parent. Being a, being a good family man, quote-unquote, is not a bonus. It's a prerequisite. So, I hope the structure is clear. We'll look at verse 13 as I conclude. And I would would encourage all of you to spend some time 
this coming week with the Lord in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Letting verses 8 to 13 function like a mirror into which you stare and perhaps even inviting your own spouse or folks who know you well to speak into areas that you um, are excelling by God's grace, areas you might be struggling or falling short. This is the yardstick against which we are to measure our fitness for the office, the high and noble office of deacon. But before leaving the subject of deacons, Paul emphasizes one more critical point. I want, I want to show you this because I just, I just love it so much. So look at, look at 1 Timothy 3, 7. Remember I told you that verses 1 to 7 are qualifications for pastors, elders. Look how it ends. Paul says, verse 7, he, an elder, a pastor, must be thought well of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And then he just moves on to deacons. He doesn't include any word of assurance, any word of comfort, any promise. He just gives the qualifications and then moves on to deacons. So you'd kind of expect him to do the same. You'd expect him to just get to the point, give us the qualification for deacons, and then move on to the next section of the letter, but he doesn't. He includes a promise for deacons in a way he doesn't for elders, because technically the qualifications end after verse 12, but he adds verse 13. Look at it. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The reason I love this is because Paul has a pastor's heart and it's like he's looking through the tunnels of time and he's seeing deacons like many of you and he knows that diaconal work is not for the faint of heart. Much of it is thankless. Much of it is underappreciated. It is grunt work, not stage work. And he's looking at you and he wants to put wind in your sails. And so he doesn't just give you the qualifications and then move on to the next paragraph in his inerrant letter. He adds a promise. And what this promise that I just read entails is two things. A faithful deacon will receive two gifts in increasing measure, respect and boldness. It's 1 Timothy 3.13, respect and boldness. The first gift comes horizontally from the church, respect. The second descends vertically from God, boldness. Isn't that, isn't that beautiful? Though the call to diaconal service is not glamorous, the reward is glorious. If you serve effectively, faithfully, tirelessly as a deacon— then your fellow congregants, your, your, the, church, the members in your church will come to uh, respect you more and more to the glory of God, and God himself will give you great confidence and boldness in your faith. He will shore up your heart when you're discouraged. He will be your hope and your stay when you feel alone and underappreciated. As Paul said it to another church, the Galatians, let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. Some of you came here wanting a lot of information and, and a to-do list, but what you really needed, what you most need to leave here with later this evening is just internalizing Galatians 6, 9. Man, let me not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, I'm going to reap if I don't give up. Pastors, for what it's worth, I wouldn't say this if this, there were only deacons here, but because you're listening in as well, I want to say Paul went out of his way to encourage these deacons by adding this promise. Make sure you, in your public ministry, are going out of your way to honor and appreciate the deacons 
serving in your midst. Make sure your church knows who the deacons are and how grateful to God you are for the amazing work they're doing. Well, in conclusion, uh, D.A. Carson, uh, a Bible scholar, has, has said that the most extraordinary thing about these lists of qualifications, both for elders and for deacons in 1 Timothy 3, the most extraordinary thing is just how ordinary they are. The same, it's just, it's really just the picture of a faithful, mature, growing, repenting, and believing Christian. But the standards here in this paragraph, 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13, they do sound this non-negotiable note. Deacons must embody the kind of character expected of all Christians. So no, back to what I said at the very beginning, it is not enough to be a successful businessman. It is not enough to know your way around lows. It is not enough to have an impressive toolkit or to be good at Excel spreadsheets or to have been in the church for 40 years. A qualified deacon is someone of whom the people in your church should be able to look at and say, I want to grow as a servant. I want to grow as a Christian. So I'm going to watch them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we can come to character sketches like this, the uh, profiles of godliness like this, and we can be, feel deflated. We, we can feel demoralized because we feel, we, we, we sense, we know that we fall short. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room that you would encourage them, specifically those who are serving your church as deacons. Oh Lord, lift up their, their heads, galvanize their hearts, put wind in their sails, help them to see that these standards are not out of reach, but by the power of your Holy Spirit, they're, they're simply called to model faithful Christian living, which, in, which entails spending ourselves in service to others and for your glory. Lord, we pray that as we continue to discuss these things over lunch, that you would help crystallize our thoughts and, again, galvanize our hearts so that we could return to our congregations with fresh energy to serve your saints. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.